Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, as you do, I don't know, can you pray and do that at the same time? <clears throat> I'll pray. You can pray with me. Lord, as we look into your word, we are so privileged, Lord, to just together uh, be in your word and uh, learn of you, Lord. We want to, uh, as John just prayed, uh, for you to reveal your, more of yourself to us tonight. As we look into the wonderful high priest that you are, our eternal high priest who is in the heavens, ministering in the tabernacle that was made without hands. Lord, we uh, want you to speak to us. Open up our eyes, open up our, the ears of our hearts, Lord, to hear what your spirit is saying. We could see, see you more clearly tonight as our faithful and merciful high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight I'm uh, trusting the leading of the, the Lord that we are, uh, it's time to do a little bit of a review in the book of Hebrews. We're coming up here to chapter 8. And as I started to study out these first verses of chapter 8, I read in first, first uh, verse 1, he says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So it got me thinking, what, what have been the things that he has been saying? What has he said up to this point? So I'd like for us to, to go back and, and review the main points of, of what uh, the writer of Hebrews has been saying about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. What I love about Hebrews is that we have this wonderful benefit of being taught these glorious truths about the priesthood of Jesus Christ and his endless ministry as our faithful high priest as the writer of Hebrews continues to make his case to these first century Christians. You know, he's writing to those who were in Jerusalem and who were raised in Judaism. And they were immersed in the Old Covenant and the Levitical priesthood. And they took, took pride in their temple rites and in their sacrifices. They were taught to highly esteem their priests who had played such a significant role in their relationship with God. But they were believers. They had heard and believed the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness. And the forgiveness that was accomplished by the atoning death of Jesus for their sins. Also hearing that he had come this first time not to rule and reign on the earth, but as a, a, to suffer and die as a lowly servant, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they had heard and believed that he had been raised to life and that he had ascended to heaven to the right hand of the throne of God to one day come again to establish his kingdom on the earth. But they struggled with the idea that the old covenant had been abolished. That it was never intended to be permanent. This, this was going to be a huge transition. They struggled with the idea that the old covenant and the temples and the, and the priests, you know, they're being told now that, that, that these could never bring anyone to perfection and to completion in our relationship with God. The fact was that their, their sacrifices could never have provided a finished salvation or washed away sin or cleansed anyone of a guilty conscience. 
They only covered sin until Jesus would die and take away the sin of the world. So these Jewish Christians struggled with the notion that the Old Covenant was just a foreshadowing. That it's, it's, something, it's something that's going to be hard to let go of. Remember, even Peter and John were going to the temple still to pray. And so they struggled with the whole idea that it was being abolished. It was only a foreshadowing of what had come and what God was fulfilling and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It was hard for them to think that the temple and the priests were no longer necessary. It's going to be a huge transition. So they needed to be assured that Jesus indeed had become their high priest forever. They had to understand that he was of another order. He was born of a different tribe and had become our eternal high priest who is in the heavens. He was the only priest who, he was only made a priest by the oath, by, by the oath of God ever made concerning a high priest. It was a, the oath that was only made regarding God's son, whom he sent into the world, that he would be a priest forever. Now based on what was written in the book of Hebrews, I think we can tell what kind of questions were being asked uh, by these first century Christians. So the writer of Hebrews is answering the questions of the day. He's arguing from their own Old Testament scriptures. So again, I'd like to do a little bit of a, re a review. If you'd turn back to um, chapter 1, let's look at what we've learned so far uh, in the book of Hebrews. I think the first question that he addresses is one about the angels. Some were no doubt asking, could Jesus of Nazareth be greater than an angel from heaven? Could his message be greater and surpass that which was delivered by angels to our forefathers? So chapter 1, he began this, the whole book by making this case that Jesus, the Son of God, is exalted above the angels. And he did that by referring to prophecy found in the book of Psalms that clearly says that the Messiah is the Son of God who is superior to the angels. In fact, the angels, we know, worship him. Because his throne is forever and ever, he is the heir of all things through whom God made the worlds and every created thing, which includes the angels. So he is the only begotten of the Father through whom all things were created. So let's just remind ourselves by reading the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So this is where the writer of Hebrews begins. Jesus, as the Son of God, is exalted above the angels. So in chapter 1, what we're seeing is the deity of Jesus Christ. Where in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews focuses on the humanity of Jesus. The question he may be addressing is, how could Jesus be greater than angels if he shared in our humanity? 
So moving into chapter 2, he explains why the humanity was necessary for Jesus to become our merciful and faithful high priest. It was necessary that he become like us so that he would experience what we experience and being tempted in all things yet without sin. He would become a merciful high priest who knows our weaknesses. So again, it's interesting that he's quoting from the book of Psalms. Let's just take a slice of what he says, starting in chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So again, in chapter 2... We see the humanity of Jesus, that he became a partaker of flesh and blood. And so he calls us his brethren. And because of the things he suffered, he was made complete as our faithful and merciful high priest. Notice also what he says uh, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. What a wonderful high priest we have. Amen? Now, moving into chapter 3, so there's no question to whom he's writing to. He begins the chapter by saying, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Then he addresses the question of Moses. The question that may be the buzz back in that day, is Jesus of Nazareth greater than Moses? Is the message he brought to us greater than that great prophet, the great leader of the Exodus, Moses who saw the face of God? who spoke with him as, a, as his friend and gave us the law and the commandments? Is Jesus of Nazareth, could he be greater than Moses? And Moses was held in high esteem by the people, as he should be. But in chapter 3, the writer makes the comparison, as we looked at in previous studies, he makes the comparison between Moses and Jesus. So let's just remind, remind ourselves what he said to us in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. 
but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So what is he saying? He's saying, yes, Moses was faithful as a servant of God. Moses was faithful in, in all God's house and is worthy of honor. But Jesus, Jesus was faithful as the son. Faithful over his own house is worthy of more glory, much more glory and honor. Just like the builder of a house, he says, has higher honor than the house itself. And I've seen some homes that, that are very honorable. Have you? I mean, they're, they're beautiful. But the builder of that house, now that's someone who deserves the honor. And so he says, Jesus, like the builder of the house, is of higher honor. In fact, Jesus is the owner of the house. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is the owner of the house. Since all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, for of him and to him and through him are all things. So not only is the Son the creator of the universe, he, he will also inherit all things, which includes us, the redeemed, who have become a spiritual household, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I was thinking what an awesome thing that is to think of, that we are the inheritance given by the Father to the Son. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So we are, we are Christ's inheritance given to the Father by the Son. He is the owner of the house. He owns us who have become a spiritual household. So he, the writer of Hebrews doesn't disregard the honor that Moses is worthy of as a servant of God who was faithful, but Jesus is worthy of so much more honor and glory as the Son. Moses was faithful, but Jesus displayed perfect faithfulness over his own house. It says he always did the will of his father. And as the son, Jesus is greater than Moses and worthy of all glory and all honor. Amen? What a wonderful high priest. Now, as we discussed in previous studies, as he goes along making his case for the superior endless priesthood of Jesus Christ, as he goes along, he includes warnings and exhortations for, for them and for us. As he says to them, things like, do not neglect so great a salvation. Be sure, you, be sure you don't come short of laying hold of eternal life. Be careful you don't fall away from this walk of faith and obedience. Be careful you do not be, get deceived by sin, which leads to unbelief and unfruitfulness. And then as we move into chapter 4, he says, be sure that you do not come short of entering in to God's rest. So if you haven't been with us in these past studies, you can get the, the tape or go online and, and watch the studies and find out uh, about these, uh, these in-depth studies that we did in these chapters. But in chapter 4, again, he quotes the Psalms primarily. 
And he talks about the significance of the Sabbath day rest. And it makes me wonder, could there have been questions about the Sabbath of these first century Jewish Christians? Could there have been a question? Because the apostles have been talking about the fulfillment of the law. And what about the Sabbath? Was there something about it that was foreshadowing? Something about it that was to be fulfilled? Was there a deeper meaning to God resting from his creative work and us resting from our labors? Hebrews says that there is a rest of God that we must enter into by faith. And again, I encourage you to get those, those studies if you haven't been with us. But it's a rest that's always been there. Let's read again some of these things he said in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, nor not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we, do, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now notice also in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did, did from his. Now, if rest is talking about our salvation, then the works we must cease from are those of self-righteousness and our attempts to earn or deserve eternal life. I trust everyone here has ceased from those works. That we're no longer trying to earn or deserve eternal life, which must be received as the gift of God and the gift of God's grace. Amen? But it's possible for our hearts to go back there, in a sense, to go back to a works-based religion, a works-based religious activity or religious uh, whatever you want to call it, where we're, we feel like we're, again, trying to gain God's approval. By, I read my Bible four times a day. Or I, you know, whatever it is. It can become that type of thing where we, we fall away from grace and the grace in which we stand. So there's a rest in enter, that we must enter into by faith. And it's interesting that he wraps up this, this discussion about entering God's rest by speaking to our responsibility and our diligence to allow the word of God to have its effect in our minds and our hearts. If we would just read it, amen? If we would just read our Bibles regularly, it's living and active and powerful. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And what we, find that, what we find is that entering the rest of God is all about responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being reconciled to God. And it's that necessary response of repentance and faith to the word of God. And it establishes this amazing relationship with our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 14 of chapter 4. 
Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So chapter 4 is about entering God's rest, about diligence in the word of God and the effect that it has in our hearts, in our minds, to bring us into a relationship of trust with our faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 5, the writer makes another comparison. The question that is addressed is this. What qualifications does Jesus have to be our high priest? And what is superior about his priesthood compared to the priesthood that has already been established through Moses and the giving of the law? He points out, first of all, that Jesus does meet the essential requirements of, of priesthood, but in very unique ways, his priesthood is far better and far superior. First, he says, like Aaron and the priests that follow him, Jesus was called by God. He was not self-appointed. Also, he was taken from among men. He says he was subject to weakness so that he could have compassion for those who, to whom he ministers. Like the other priests, he also offered gifts and sacrifice for sin. Namely, he offered himself, laying down his life. Then again, he quotes from the Psalms, answering the question, what is superior about the priesthood of Jesus? Let's read in chapter 5, remind ourselves, starting in verse 5, what we learned. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then he'll go on in chapters 6 and 7 to compare the life and the priesthood of Jesus to what is recorded about this person Melchizedek that is found in Genesis 14. Melchizedek was the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God, which we'll look more closely at in just a moment. But before he goes into that, he inserts another warning for us in chapter 6. Again, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to, to get that message. In my Bible, chapter 6 has the title, The Peril of Not Progressing. Because like us, these believing Jews had been taught the elementary principles of Christ. But notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, let us leave these and go on to perfection or on to completion. In other words, what he's saying is let's continue to grow up. I think what he's saying, in other words, don't settle for having taken Christian, Christianity 101. Don't settle for having 
uh, for knowing the basics. Don't be deceived that having that fundamental knowledge of, of Christianity is enough. Over and over the scriptures exhort us to grow up and to mature. To become equipped as servants of Christ and workers who need not be ashamed. I don't want to settle. And I hope that's true of you as well. But there's a, there's, there can be a temptation. You know, I, I know the basics. I know the fundamentals. I, I know what I believe. And now I'm just going to, I can coast through this world until I get to see Jesus. And that's, that's the warning. There's perils if we're not progressing. If we're not growing, if we're not moving forward, then we're slipping backwards. I don't want to settle. I want to learn what it means to walk with the Lord. I want to learn what it means to ab abide in Him. To really trust Him with all of my heart. To learn what it means to be, just be praying about everything. And trusting the Lord and seeing the Lord working and moving and using me and bearing much fruit for the kingdom of God as I abide in him. To know that when he's coming again, his rewards will be with him. And to even think that I might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to settle. I don't want to think I can just coast through this world and disregard what the Bible says about laying hold of eternal life and living out the abundant life that God has for each and every one of us. Notice again what, is, what he, he wrote in Hebrews 6, starting at verse 10. It's very encouraging. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So the warning is to watch out for the peril of not progressing. Okay, now we're moving on in our review, moving into chapter 7, where the writer of Hebrews explains the significance of Melchizedek, who appeared to Abraham, which is again recorded in Genesis 14. And as, as we discuss this further among ourselves, we all agree that the main thing is not really what you think of Melchizedek and whether he was a theophany or a Christophany or just an ordinary guy or whether, he, again, he was an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That's not the main thing. The main thing is what is revealed about Melchizedek that helps us understand the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So let's look at what we learned in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. 
Again, I think the, the writer of Hebrews may be answering the questions that were being raised by the Jewish Christians of the day. They were being told that Jesus has become our eternal high priest who ministers continually in the heavenly tabernacle that is made without hands. And that God has put in place another priesthood. God has also made a change in the law and has established a new covenant. It's no longer according to the order of Aaron. It's no longer according to the tribe of Levi, but it is of the order of Melchizedek. And no doubt, they were wondering all their lives what was the significance of this person, Melchizedek, and that he appears in the pages of Scripture and has this interesting conversation with Abraham. What is the significance of this, this priest and king? Let's read about it in chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of the tribe of, the, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow. What a wonderful high priest that we have. Amen. All right. Again, if you haven't been here for those in-depth studies, I encourage you to, to get those. But we're moving on at this point. Let's move into some new territory. And I'd like to re actually start beginning in chapter 7, verse 26, and then we'll read through into chapter 8, verse 6, as he continues his comparison of the priesthood of Jesus and the priest that served under the law, none of which could bring about completion in establishing, establishing an eternal fellowship with God. Amen? So Hebrews 7, starting in verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens 
a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer, offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also had something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he has also he, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Okay? So basically what he's saying to them now is, let's compare Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. Let's compare Jesus to the priest that we have had under the law. Let's compare him to the priest that you have had recently and to the priest that you now have. Let's compare him to Caiaphas and to Annas and Ananias, the current priest. I think what he's saying is, you will, I think you will agree that Jesus is a superior high priest. The superior high priest. Number one, he says Jesus has moral perfection. Looking back at uh, verse 26 of chapter 7 where we began. Jesus has moral perfection. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So he points out that Jesus is morally perfect. I doubt they could say that of any of their high priests. Jesus is, has moral perfection, yet he is identified with us in our needs and weaknesses, since he was in all things as we were tempted, yet without sin. Moral perfection makes Jesus supreme to any and all high, high priests, any who have ever lived, and any who live today. Amen? So number one is his moral perfection. Number two, Jesus finished his work. Notice what, again what it says in verse 1 of chapter 8. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus is seated because his work is completed. Has a nice rhyme to it, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus is seated because his work is completed. Now in the old tabernacle, there were no chairs. No chairs on the list of things that they were, they were instructed to, to make in, in furniture and put those in the tabernacle. There were no chairs because their work was never finished. Their repeated sacrifices, again, were a continual reminder that they never provided a finished salvation. They never sufficiently washed away sin or cleansed anyone of a guilty conscience. They only covered sin until Jesus would come and die for the sin of the world. So, but Jesus finished his work. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. Right? It is finished. Number three, where Jesus is seated is very significant. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Again, he is after the order of Melchizedek, who was a priest and a king. So number three, Jesus is enthroned, seated on the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This, as we know, is a, is a fulfillment of the Father's promise uh, 
found again in the Psalms, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Prophesied only of the Son and our high priest, who is our high priest forever. Number four, Jesus is the supreme high priest because he is exalted. He has passed through the heavens. He has ascended and has been exalted. He's been exalted above any and all other priests, having been given the name that is above every name. And he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. He's the superior high priest who, who mediates a superior covenant. He ministers in a heavenly sanctuary, sanctuary where he is a living sacrifice. It's, it says there he could not be a priest on earth. He would not be permitted to be a priest. He could not function as a priest since he would not be accepted, not having come from the tribe of Levi. But he was of the tribe of Judah, which was prophesied of the promised Messiah. So it only makes sense that he's ministering in a heavenly tabernacle. The one, again, that is made without hands. So we can all agree with what he says in verse 6. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises, which we'll hear more about in our next study. Amen? So I hope this was helpful. It was tremendously helpful for me to go back over uh, what we've learned so far in the book of Hebrews, the main things that he's been saying about the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I find myself always going back and landing in, in chapter 4, where he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But in all points tempted as we are yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Are we not thankful for the throne? The throne of grace? Pray with me and then we'll, we'll move on with our service. Lord, thank you for this wonderful book of Hebrews. Your glorious word, Lord. And the privilege we have of, of learning these glorious truths about your eternal priesthood. You are our wonderful high priest. Lord, and you, you care so much for us. You intercede for us. Lord, you are able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through you. Thank you, Lord, for who you have become for us. We give you the glory and honor that is due your name. We praise you tonight. Yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.